0: Oh, mm-hmm. Smith, and this is More Than One Lesson, episode 109. Uh, I want to thank everybody for listening to the Big Kahuna episode last week. I assume there weren't very many of you because it it is not a film that is very well known. Uh, But we'll more than make up for that with this week's uh, discussion of the big blockbuster, A Most Wanted Man. And by the way, it is, I'd say there's a 40% chance that at some point I'm going to say A Man Most Wanted uh, because for some reason uh, I keep making that mistake in my mind as i talk about it so i apologize if that happens but um before we get to that and before we introduce my co-host uh there are a number of announcements that i wanted to get to uh first off okay um a few days ago uh it was uh, announced that uh, robin williams uh had died and it is a very sad and tragic thing and uh we are sorry to hear about that um Reed Lackey, one of our writers, he uh, texted me and asked if he could write uh, a tribute to Robin Williams, and I said absolutely. So you can find that at morethanonelesson.com. It is a fairly personal blog to read, and uh, I think it is a a fitting tribute to Robin Williams. And perhaps I'll, I'll, uh, I did this on Facebook, but maybe I'll post uh, an article just talking about some of his uh, better performances. Uh, Some of them are lesser known. Uh, obviously, there's stuff like Goodwill Hunting and and Mrs. Doubtfire and that sort of thing. But there are others that people just don't seem to know. Possibly because they're not comedic in nature, but they're still very good. I think he could have, he could be a very good actor. There are some things that I don't necessarily like him very much in, and movies that he was in that I don't like at all. But when he was on, he could really be on. And so uh, so maybe I'll do that. Uh, but in the meantime, you can go and read uh, Reed's article. So. Uh, Other announcements, Uh, there is a podcast called Feeding My Faith that I was asked to guest host, um, which I did, I recorded something like two months ago, and then it didn't show up on the feed, so I assumed that they didn't like what I recorded, Uh, and then finally, a few weeks ago, it did pop up, and I forgot to tell you guys, so you can go and listen to that, in which I talk about Matthew 25, specifically the parable of the uh, bags of gold or the parable of the talents or whatever, you, however you want to uh, approach it. So you can find a link to that at more than one uh, And then lastly, okay, so here we go. I think I mentioned that there is a thing called alpha Omega con, which is uh, sort of a Christian comic and pop culture convention, not unlike comic con or wonder con. This is the first one they've ever done. And it will be in La Mirada, California. Uh, More Than One Lesson has uh, paid to set up uh, what's called an exhibitor booth, which is just an opportunity to have people come up and find out about the show and the website and also our philosophy uh, about film. I'm very excited. Uh, It remains to be seen if people will respond well. I think they will Uh, this this uh, convention is put on by the same people that uh, hosted a, a number of panels, uh, Christian-related panels uh, at WonderCon and Comic-Con that I have been to, and I feel like they have a very good attitude about art, and so I my hope is that we'll get not merely a number of listeners, but also just people who believe in what we're doing, and then maybe there will be some people that, uh, that don't really like movies that much, and uh, perhaps we can uh, start up a dialogue with them. So, all right. The thing is this, it will cost some money, uh, to do this, right. We need to make a banner, which costs some money. We, uh, I would like to, you know, press some, uh, some sample CDs. Uh, we will also have some postcards, a little barcode on it so that people can take it, scan it and, uh, pull up, uh, episodes that, uh, that I think that they will like. Um, so I got to pay to get those postcards and press those CDs and that sort of thing. So there are some minimal costs, uh, involved. And so I will say this, uh, you know, even though it's not remarkably expensive, uh, everything that's ever, you know, it'll, it's all basically out of pocket. So if you felt like helping us out, we would very much appreciate it. Uh, if you've been looking for an opportunity to donate to the show, but you weren't really sure what it was going to, uh, now would be the time. It will go to Alpha Omega Con and making sure that we have a booth that people will find interesting, and uh, so that we can best connect with potential listeners uh, as well as other vendors uh, and that sort of thing. So, uh, so what you can do is you can go to morethanonelesson.com. There will be a button that says donate right there at the top right. You can click on that, or if you happen to be listening, uh, from the website, then there will be a link within the show notes of this post. So if you could do that, that that'd be very helpful. Even if you can only donate five or 10 bucks, we would really appreciate it. Everything helps. Like I said, the costs are relatively minimal, but, uh, I prefer not to go completely out of pocket on this. So I would really appreciate that. Uh, and then also just, uh, for those that, that haven't yet, you can go and like us on Facebook, um, you can find a link to that through morethanonelesson.com. So basically, everything that I've been talking about, you can find at the website morethanonelesson.com. All right, thank you for bearing with me. I will now bring in somebody else that you can bear with. It is my co-host Josh Long. Josh, that's me. How you doing? Doing all right. All right. Hey, where is La Mirada, California? Just in case people are wondering, it is south of Los Angeles. Uh, it's it's near Anaheim. It's just north of Anaheim, I believe. Um. So yeah, I've, I think I've driven through it, but I don't, I don't think I've ever been there, but it will be, the venue is a, is a church, a fairly large church, which has uh, facilities that can accommodate uh, a lot of people. Uh, I don't think it takes, I don't think it's going to be happening in the uh, sanctuary or anything, mm-hmm. but I think they have a, a large space, uh, where they can set up the booths and stuff like that. But there are all, there will also be, uh, panels and stuff, which I'm excited to, uh, to attend. Um, I'll be going with, uh, a friend or two so that somebody can man the booth while I go to panels and that I can man the booth while they go to panels. So uh it'll be I don't know. Hopefully it'll be a lot of fun. I'm I'm I hope there's a good turnout so that they, you know, can do it again the following year. Yeah. Um I don't know. There there I feel like there really aren't a lot of celebrations within the Christian community of art in general, and uh whether it be comic books or movies or television or that sort of thing. So uh so I, I hope that this turns out well and you know, it's interesting. Uh, I posted this on the, on the, uh, MTL Facebook page. Uh, there is a movie coming out in September called believe me and it is a Christian film, but it looks, I'll be honest with you. It's a comedy and I've seen Christian comedy before and it's usually pretty terrible. Um, but this one actually looks pretty good. It looks like there's a cynicism to it. Uh, and it is about uh, these uh, christian college students who are i'm sorry they're college students that are not christian mm-hmm. but they realize that they uh that they can get money and financing if they if they fake it and so they they're fake they're shysters a, they're shysters exactly um and so but of course as they are uh faking this this ministry uh it starts to sort of seep into their hearts and, and that sort of thing. So it sounds pretty interesting, but among, and it all has, it's, you know, cast with real actors that have done real things, including among others, Christopher McDonald, who I'm a big fan of and mm-hmm. Nick Offerman. Yeah. So, which is a uh, very surprising.
1: I forget the guy's name, but the guy who plays the, uh, the like worship director was one of the, uh, the main characters from happy endings which was a show that oh, was really okay. funny. I can't remember the actor's name for
0: some reason. Yeah. I've never seen it. Unfortunately,
1: that's, that was the only thing that I've seen him in, but he was good on that show. So yeah. And, excited the, to see him in this too.
0: and the lead is, is, uh, one of the lead actors of the film Chronicle. And so, hmm. I mean, it's got genuine talent. I mean, yeah. if you, if you're trying to make a comedy, I feel like casting among others, Christopher McDonald and Nick, uh, Nick Offerman is a step in the right direction. So I watched the trailer and I was actually very optimistic. So, uh, and of course, I could be I could be way off when in when eventually watching the movie, I could it could wind up being everything else that I everything that I feel like Christian movies are and shouldn't be. Um, but I am optimistic, and so between stuff like that and Alpha Omega Con, I I am excited that there are some in the Christian community that are moving towards art in a way that embraces it while also not compromising their spiritual beliefs. Mm-hmm. So, and who knows, maybe. Maybe believe me, does that? Who's to say? Yeah. But it looks like uh, everybody behind it is a Christian. It's, it doesn't look like it's going to be, you know, the movie saved or something like that. So, uh, so yeah, uh, it's a, it's an interesting time right now. Um, all right, so we've got to uh, we've got to get down to business because uh, you've got a frisbee game to go to. Man, I gotta get there. Let's go. Let's go. Come on. <sighs> I'm just okay. kidding. here we go. I
1: am going to play Frisbee, but there's no rush.
0: No rush. Absolutely. There's a chance
1: that no one will even be there, but really? Yeah. Last time. I know. Last time I went to that, uh, to that game, there was no one there, but that was a while ago. So
0: you played Frisbee just by yourself. Yeah. For you th- three hours. You threw the Frisbee and then you're like, go long, buddy. And then you threw it and then you ran really hard and yeah. caught it. Yeah. Sometimes you would slap it away from yourself. Yeah. Boy, oh, boy. And give myself a high five. Exactly. Yeah. That sounds so sad. I recognize that's not what happened, but I'm still depressing myself. Yeah. So, okay. The movie that we're talking about, as I mentioned, is called A Most Wanted Man. Not A Man Most Wanted. I should probably stop saying that, because then I will start saying it. Or A Man Wanted Most. A Wanted Most Man.
1: I th- I think a man wanted most could be like a, uh, a, a bad romantic
0: comedy. Kid, it does it? seem like that. Yes. Like, like a sex uh, in the city type thing. Yeah. All she wants is a man. But he's, he's the, you know, he's the most wanted man in New York <laughs> because of some, you know, talk show appearance or something like that. <laughs> like the city's most eligible bachelor or something like that. Anyway. Um, Let's write this movie, Josh. I think it's a, you know, and then anybody going to see a most wanted man could get confused and go here by accident. Exactly. Take notes, Catherine Heigl. Yeah. I, I feel like it'd be the exact opposite, right? That people (laughs) wanting to see this romantic comedy would wind up seeing this espionage thriller. Yeah. So, okay. I first heard of a most wanted man. Admittedly around the time Philip Seymour Hoffman died because it is, uh, I believe his last role. I mean, he's, you know, he's going to be in the next uh, Hunger Games because his character was in it previously. Mm-hmm. So there's all all of those. But um, but I think this is his last major role. And uh, so I had heard about that. And then when I had heard that it was based on a John Carre uh, novel who wrote, among other things, Tinker, Taylor, Soldier, Spy, A Spy Who Came In From the Cold. Uh, sorry, The Spy Who Came In From the Cold, um, both of which I haven't read any of his books, but I have seen movies based on his books and I love them. I love the tone of them. They really, I really respond to them. And so, and it seemed like Philip Seymour Hoffman was tailor made to be the lead character in one of those. He has, Mm. you know, not to speak ill of him, but the parts that he tended to play, there was a, often a rumpled, cynical, defeated quality to, to some of his performances. And I feel like he could play that very well. Yeah. So, um, so I got the opportunity to see a, a screening of it for Battleship Pretension. And if you want to go read my review, it is very in-depth. It is 1,200 words because apparently I just can't stop talking about wow. it. Uh, so yeah, when I saw the screening, um, I it, it, the movie takes a while to get going. But then once it does, I... Loved it. Uh, It's still relatively early in the year, but right now it is my favorite movie of 2014. Uh, Just so much about it is the kind of thing I respond to in every way. Um, So I don't know what the situation is from a theatrical standpoint. I don't know where it has opened. I feel like there are probably some cities where, first off, it may never come to. Mm -hmm. But also I feel like there are some cities that it will come to, but it hasn't yet. So be on the lookout for it. I really recommend it. Uh, we'll go into more detail about it, but, uh, yeah, but, some you know, places it, may be in luck that it'll come out merely because it has Philip Seymour Hoffman. Yeah. In it
1: and, yeah. um, I hate to talk of people like capitalizing on that, but, uh, but there, he, he, people might be thinking about him more than they would have before he passed away. And
0: yeah, uh, his, his death did mean a lot to people. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, uh, and if this is the his last film and he's and he is the lead performer in it, then yeah, maybe like if there is a silver lining to his death, which, you know, I don't like to think in those terms, but from an artistic standpoint it means maybe people will take interest in him as an actor and see movies, whether it be this or others, that they wouldn't have sought out otherwise. Mm-hmm. Um, there's this tendency, I think, when somebody is around, somebody is alive to Uh, take them for granted and just assume, well, I'll see it eventually or something like that. But then when they're gone, you realize, all right, there's, they're not going to make any more movies. So I better take advantage now. So, um, but yeah, so what was your, uh, what was your, did you have any kind of association leading up to seeing the film or, um, uh, and what was your reaction, uh, general reaction to the film when you saw it?
1: I think my fr- I hadn't heard of it until after you had seen it and talked about it. you liked it so much. Um, and I, I think my main connection to it was the uh, I remember enjoying the movie Control, which was directed by Anton. He said just Corbin. Is that I think Corbin. Yeah. Um, yeah. I. I I remembered stylistically control was a movie that I enjoyed quite a bit. And that's uh, for people who don't know that movie. It's a sort of a biopic about, mm-hmm. um, the front man for the, the band joy division, Ian Curtis. Ian Curtis. Yeah. And, uh, that was an that was an interesting movie. That that also that movie was interesting too because Corbin had directed some music videos for them or like concert mm. footage or something for them. Like he had been actually been involved with the band. So
0: he I find of, it hard to believe that he would direct music videos. When I think of what a music video is, and then I think of the way he makes films because yeah. uh, because I um I saw some of Control, but not all of it. But I remember mm-hmm. really responding to it, and I never saw the American, which I heard was I some people it hated it. I think I would like it. Probably. Yeah. But he's he, a very, he's a very, uh, scaled back director. Not, he's, there's no, there's not a lot of freneticism to, yeah. to his directing.
1: Yeah, there's not, but, uh, I don't know. There, there's still is an energy to it, even if it's absolutely, even if it moves, it's more slowly. If the story is moving more slowly because both of these films control and the most wanted man, uh, move, kind of slowly yeah um, but uh, certainly in the case of a most wanted man there's a lot of suspense there there's a lot of tension boy oh boy which I think is great that's I think that's one of the best things you can do in a in a spy film is is really maintain the tension throughout yeah um, because you know that's what all the characters
0: are feeling even if it's only on the inside yeah and also and without getting again we'll, we'll go into more detail a little bit later but um i mean there's there tends there's not a lot of life or death tension right it's all tension of is this thing going to work out so that we can then accomplish our larger goal which are which you know there are life and death stakes to that Mm -hmm. but this is just oh is this guy going to sign this document or not yeah. But there's so much tension in that yeah. moment, and yeah. it's, it's astounding to me how they're able to do that. It reminded me in many ways of a, a film that I don't think you've seen, which is The Insider, um, which is just about a guy you know giving a deposition about uh, the tobacco industry. Now, mm-hmm. of course, I mean, people die of lung cancer and that kind of thing. So there is something to that, but it's, it's directed by Michael Mann, and it has just as much suspense – and tension as heat or collateral or manhunter mm-hmm. stuff where there are shootouts and that sort of thing. Um, but it's just people in offices and this, this reminded me of that, that he's mm-hmm. able to achieve just as much, te- much tension as if there was, you know, people shooting at each other. Yeah. Um, which is to me astounding. And I'll talk about a little, I'll talk a little bit about how he does that in a moment, but, but yeah, so you would say that you're, that overall you had a favorable reaction to the, film? yeah, yeah, Definitely. Okay. Um, do, you have a, do, you,
1: do you rank movies as you go throughout the year? You know, I used not to, but now uh, since for Battlestar Pretension, I've had to make my top ten list every year. Now I've started just ranking them as we go along. Out of curiosity,
0: what is your number one at the moment?
1: I think my number one right now is Grand Budapest Hotel.
0: Oh, yeah, that. Mm-hmm. It's in my top ten, I think. Um,
1: I think one, two, and three for me right now would be Grand Budapest Hotel, Under the Skin, and The Trip to Italy.
0: Oh okay. So you so you like the trip to Italy? I did quite a lot. All right. Um which is of course the sequel to The Trip, which we reviewed on this show. So there's an episode about ago. it it's out there for you. Yeah. If we were yeah. If we uh if we record about one movie and then there's a sequel, we have to do that.
1: That's true. Um, and then uh this goes up on Thursday, correct? Yeah. My uh my review of the trip to Italy should be up on Battleship Retention the same day. Yes, so it is. You can you can listen to our recording about the trip, then you can read the review about the trip to Italy and decide if you want to go see that. Indeed, absolutely. And then go see it, because probably you'll want to.
0: And I assume that it'll have just as many spiritual connotations as we put on the first one. Totally. Um, I like the way I phrased that, by the way. <laughs> we put them on it. It doesn't really have it. Um, we just read into things. I mean, none of these movies actually have these themes. Um they're just fun they're, they're all just popcorn movies <laughs> um, but uh you know you have permission to turn off your brain from a- now on absolutely especially when you see a most wanted man yeah uh so okay um i have a summary here in front of me that i got from uh, imdb so i will read that and then we will be off and running in our dis- uh specific discussion of this film so okay When a half-Chechen, half-Russian, brutally tortured immigrant turns up in uh, Hamburg's Islamic community, laying claim to his father's ill-gotten fortune, both German and U.S. security agencies take a close interest. As the clock ticks down and the stakes rise, the race is on to establish this most-wanted man's true identity, oppressed victim or destruction-bent extremist. So... And you know what? what's interesting is uh, that is a good summary to set up the film and kind of cap, capture your interest. Um, and I will say I'm sure that people have not seen this film. There will be some spoilers involved. Uh, I'll try to stay as vague as possible. But even just based on that summary, I'm going to be spoiling oppressed victim or destruction uh, destruction bent terror uh extremist i
1: think in order to talk about the themes of this we really have to get into a lot of what ends up happening so if you would much rather know what happens first in seeing the
0: movie then see it and then return to this and it's not really a film of twists uh there's there's something towards there are developments uh that maybe you won't see coming yeah um But yeah, so I'll try to, I'll try to stay vague, um, for those that want to keep listening, but haven't seen the film. But if you, if you absolutely don't want it spoiled, then, um, I would suggest stop listening, go watch the movie and then come back. So, okay. So the film is every, every bit of it is the kind of thing I respond to. I think it is shot in a very meditative, very methodical way. Um, that allows the characters and the actors, but also just the situation to really breathe and, and settle in. There's a lot of information. At times it's a little confusing, but you, you pick up on it that the story is in many ways kind of – or sorry, not the story. The plan of our, for lack of a better term, heroes uh, is fairly simple. And once you settle in on what that is, um, it's pretty easy to understand. Yeah, this actually, I, I feel like that kind of stood out
1: mm-hmm. as a spy movie. Because sometimes you see these ones and I'm, I'm, you can get halfway in. And like, I don't know what everyone is trying to do in this yeah. movie. And sometimes you get to the end and you're like, I think I know what happened, but I'm not totally sure. Um, this one, I I still feel like there's a lot of complexity to it. But I I don't feel like there was ever a moment when I was wondering what's going on.
0: Yeah, it's, I mean, I think... The moments where there might be some confusion are moments where it's m- you're meant supposed to have to, confusion right. because again you don't totally know where somebody's loyalties lie and that sort of thing. Right. So, um, so yeah, I think I think Anton Corbin is a, is a filmmaker who always has exerts control. What well, the American. <laughs> it doesn't work over the American audience. Indeed. Absolutely. But all the other audiences, they're onto him. Um, they consider him a most wanted man. That didn't work. Music videos. (laughs) So, um, but yeah, he just, he has such an, such a command of tone that, you're just always, you're always right there with him. I feel like you tend not to feel or think anything he doesn't want you to. Um, and I will say, you know, I, I, don't, I feel like I don't talk a lot about editing on this show, um, and maybe I should talk more about it. Um, I tend to recognize editing when there are like quick cuts or there's a lot of things to juggle and you're able to keep track of them. Uh, The companion film won the Oscar for Best Editing because it's an ensemble cast, among other things, but you're always able to follow what's happening. Um, A Most Wanted Man makes some interesting editorial choices that some people, based on some comments that I read on IMDb, some people uh, have taken a very different way than I did. There are scenes that will happen, often in the middle of a city, and when the scene is done, for all intents and purposes, once the characters are done talking or the information has been communicated, uh, the camera will linger for about another, I'm going to say five seconds. And in that five seconds, because we we are dealing with the world of terrorism, and we've been taught through film to know when a scene is over, the fact that the camera is lingering, and then the way that the character is framed after the scene is over often in a wide shot with emphasis uh maybe maybe not emphasis but like but i'll I'll just use that with emphasis being placed on what's behind them or what's next to them so the scene is over we are suddenly very aware of what's around them and we're just sitting and watching in a world of domestic terrorism, not domestic terrorism, pardon me, terrorism that can happen in the midst of cities and that sort of thing. And after a while, I just kept expecting violence at the hmm. end of these scenes because we're dealing with spies and maybe somebody's on to them. Uh, and for some reason, and this might just be me, but like, you know, character uh, scenes of characters walking through the city, very, very quietly talking about things. And then one character walks off and. And then we linger on the character that remains. Now we linger there for a number of reasons. One is to see that character's response now that the scene is over, but also just, again, the way it is framed and how long the scene continues after that. I think we're trained to expect more. Otherwise, why would we be continuing to watch this? And for myself, I just always expected there to be some kind of explosion Hmm. or, or a, a gunshot or something like that. And so, uh, but that's my expectation. I think at the very least, by shooting it and, and cutting it that way, I think Anton Corbin creates at the very least a sense of anticipation, which is how these characters live. They, are, they have to always expect something. And just from – so from a film – from this style of filmmaking, uh, that is an impact that it had on me. And that, that is what created a lot of the tension for me is always feeling like something more is going to happen. Now, one could make the argument. like, yeah, but nothing does. Well, it does over the course of the film, but again, the lives that these characters live, they have to always be expecting something whether it comes or not. So they are always living in tension. So I think it's a good way of putting us in the mindset and the emotional state of the characters we're watching. So that's, that's just me. Maybe I'm reading too much into it. I don't know. What do you think either about what I'm saying or just about the style of the film in general? We'll talk about characters in a moment.
1: I didn't notice that in the editing, but I think that I did have that feel throughout the movie. That feel mm-hmm. of of anticipation of of something you know something could happen at any minute. Yeah. Um. And I feel that uh, I feel like that. Is, that's definitely an intentional thing to kind of have this uh, create this uncomfortable world where uh, you can't you can't just sit back and let anything happen they kind of have to be uh watching constantly right and yeah i definitely got that that feel throughout the movie um and it also builds that another thing that i think is in any good spy movie that feeling that you don't know who are the good guys or who and who are the bad guys and you don't know who you can trust yeah and i think it i think it does well in that it's uh it's a film that is aware of the the movies that have come before it Mm -hmm. and is aware of what people expect in spy movies and um you know have seen up to this point so they know that we're not assuming that our quote-unquote heroes will be the good guys you know they at any moment could turn out to be the bad guys and uh, it's kind of like anyone at any
0: minute could turn out to be the bad guys. Yeah. That's a big, that's a big thing. Uh, in like John le Carre, like, uh, the spy who came in from the cold, which is a film that I just absolutely love, mm-hmm. you know, that's dealing like uh, Tinker Taylor soldier spy. That's dealing with the cold war. And while I do think that, uh, you know, there was a, a great deal of evil in Soviet communism. um, you know, the argument if unless like no rockets are actually being fired, there are no real aggressors one way or the other. And so uh, any anything that's happening proactively, you could make the argument of, oh, well, now they're just, uh, I don't know, provoking. And so if it's uh, if it's on our side or in often on the side of the British, uh, that's that was this like he tended uh, not to write about. Uh, Americans, he wrote about like the British secret service and, and that kind of thing. And so, um, so anything they're doing could be viewed as provocative and making things worse in the name of making things better. And so, uh, so yeah, he's, and you often have characters that are aware of this, that they do this because this is what they've always done, but they have a moment of like, is this the right thing to do? I mean, I'm not really the one I, I, I don't really give the orders. So, but I, I have reservations about what I'm doing. So what responsibility do I have to my own conscience and my own idealism and that kind of thing? So, and you he, see that trucks in it, that idea a lot. Yeah. And you see that again
1: in this movie where they, they're literally asking why, why do we do this?
0: Yeah. And it's, you know, and, and one thing that I do like in this film, because, uh, you know, a, a spy who came in from the, uh, sorry, I don't know why I say <laughs> Oh, cause it's a most wanted man. Ah. Sorry. The spy who came in from the cold. It, it's very much uh, a, a, a one man show. There are other characters that are very interesting, but it's very much about this character, Alec Lemus, uh, played by Richard Burton. Tinker, Tailor, Soldier, Spy is certainly an ensemble, but is it is first and foremost about what's his name, George Smiley, George Smiley? Yeah, played by Gary Oldman. This one is primarily about uh, Gunter Bachmann, played by Philip Seymour Hoffman, but it's it's also there are long stretches where he's not really a part of it. it this mm-hmm. one feels of those three movies. Uh, this one feels the most like an ensemble. Um, I and see that. W- within that ensemble, you have various levels of idealism and cynicism. Uh, you have a character like Rachel McAdams, who's young and she's kind of a progressive, uh, kind of person who, you know, fights for the, the rights and mental well being of, of, uh, Muslim refugees and maybe even suspected terrorists and that mm-hmm. sort of thing because she, she believes in, in the goodness of people and that sort of thing. Um, but then you have somebody like Robin Wright, who is, uh, an American as Claire Underwood, uh, basically Claire Underwood. <laughs> yes. Um, and that, and by the way, uh, this might be one of the spoiler things that her character, uh, there's a coldness to her that belies, I think, a real – not even necessarily an opportunism, but just this idea of like, all right, we just need to get what we can get uh, while we can get it. And there's a short-sightedness to her that I think belies a certain cynicism of like, well, we're never going to f- solve this whole thing, so we got to take our small victories while we can. Yeah. In between, I think you get Gunter,
1: mm-hmm.
0: who has been doing this long enough – um, to know that there 's going to be failures, and there might be more failures than successes, but when he sees the opportunity to succeed, I think you you really see the idealistic spark of we can really do something here yeah and so there comes a moment when he 's talking with uh, with Robin Wright, and he they they ask that question like you said of why do we do this and, and he and she says to make the world a better place and you see kind of a world weary smile on his face but then he brings it up later and and you you wonder if either one of them actually believes that but he seems to actually believe it in a way um, and that's I think why the character is so dynamic is because he he has this conflict in himself to. Not let himself get too carried away thinking this plan is really – not only is it going to go great, but when it goes great, we'll really be able to make a difference. We'll actually be able to make the world a safer place. There's a part of him that really believes that, but then there's also the part of him that has been doing this long enough that he doesn't want to let himself get carried away. And it's a really dynamic – I guess we're moving into character now. It's a really dynamic performance by Philip and There's There are some people that say they feel like it's his best. I'm not sure if I'd say that, but it is – you know, there, every once in a while, and maybe more often than I should, I tend to define a really great performance by, could I see another actor do this? And would the character still have the impact? Hmm. Um, and that's the thing. Any number of actors, I think, could play this character and bring something different to it. But I think for the type of character that he is, Philip Seymour Hoffman, who who you know, brings a world you know, I'm sorry, brought a world weariness to his characters, but also could see could have a, a an energy to him that uh denotes uh excitement. Um I think he really makes the character his own to the extent that I cannot imagine anybody else playing him. Hmm. Um so it is very much not unlike a not unlike a, a Gust Avocados from Charlie Wilson's war. Mm-hmm. Um or, or, um, oh shoot, man, I don't remember his, the name of his character in the master, but those are characters that I feel like are Lancaster Dodd. That's what it was. Um, it's like, it's a good name. Yeah. It's a wonderful name. It is. It's the, you know what? If somebody had that name, I would follow them. <laughs> um, and so, uh, there are a number of characters over the course of his career that it's like, though, those are him
1: mm-hmm.
0: completely it just sure. Somebody else could probably play them, but they wouldn't feel the same. Mm -hmm. They need to, you know, especially with a character like Lancaster Dodd, and we'll talk about the master at some point uh, on the show when I feel like I'm up to it, um, emotionally and spiritually and all the others, um, you know, he often plays characters that could have been boiled down to their basic essence and then just that is played. But I think he understands the complexity of his characters and that there's good and bad in each one. Um, and he manages to play that tension, um, and I'll talk about some of the other characters as well, but uh, but yeah, how did you respond to Philip Seymour Hoffman uh, in this in this film? Am I being maybe I'm being uh, hyperbolic?
1: Um, I don't I don't think that I felt as strongly about it as you did, but I I definitely enjoyed it a lot, and I think there's a lot of uh, in so much of the movie the character can never say what he thinks. Mm-hmm. You know, this is a we're usually seeing him when he's at work and when he's having to. Uh, maybe to play other people or to, uh, you know, to hold his cards close to his chest. So given a character who's, who, whose tongue is tied, he's never able to tell us what he wants or what he thinks. We still know, I feel like we still know for the bulk of the movie, certainly by the end. Mm -hmm. Um, and I think that takes a very, that takes a very strong performance.
0: Yeah, speaking of the end without going into detail, you know, things don't really go the way the character would have liked them to go. And you know, that's the thing is the character is just this coiled spring the whole time and then because he there's a thing he needs to happen and if he lets his emotions carry him then he won't be able to think clearly. Mm-hmm. But at the end plan is over, there's nothing more he can do and then finally everything just comes out and it's a really powerful moment. I mean, it's mm-hmm. hard to I mean, the character basically just kind of explodes and it's hard to play an explosion. Yeah. Um, but he does completely. You really feel like this is the culmination of the frustration that we've been seeing all throughout the film. Yeah. Um, and it's a really, it's a really powerful moment.
1: Yeah. You can almost see, um, you can almost see earlier in the film too his, his world weariness coming through when he's trying to be sincere with people, when he has to be sincere with people. (laughs) I specifically think of the scenes with the, um, uh, I'm trying to remember the name of the character the
0: the son of the um... and that's a nice reveal yeah because there's a part of his plan is that he is he's targeted a a basically a Muslim philanthropist mm-hmm. who in many ways is on the surface doing great things for the the image of the Muslim community but underneath he is also and by and large he's like a kind of a, a good man but he also Helps finance, you know, Muslim extremists and terrorists and that sort of thing. So he's he's doing very bad things, and uh, and early on in the film we see that that uh, Gunter has this young like tw- early twenties uh, informer who's this this Muslim kid and then it is revealed and and the kid like feels like he I can't do this anymore and you see Gunter, like hug him and can, and tell him like you're doing a good thing and then it is revealed later in the film this is this is I'm not sure if it's a twist but it's definitely a reveal yeah when you see that oh this kid is the son of this philanthropist that's yeah. how much that's how uh how close Philip Seymour Hoffman has gotten and that's in that moment that's when you realize wow he is really good at his job yeah He's managed to convince this kid to inform on his father, right? And he
1: he's able to do that by like appealing to him emotionally, still, mm-hmm. which is is amazing. But even in some of those moments when he's talking to him, we we buy that the kid accepts what Gunter's selling, but at the same time, we don't really buy that Gunter believes any of it, you yeah. know.
0: I think he does understand. I think he understands that this will have an emotional impact on the person he's talking to. He he knows this means something to the kid, and I and I do feel for him. Mm -hmm. But I still have something I need to do, and I am willing to manipulate somebody emotionally to do it. Yeah. So I think he understands. You know, and what what a hellish place to live. Mm -hmm. Understanding the emotional. I mean, look, I see this all the time when I watch Survivor. (laughs) Uh, Understanding the emotional. Consequences of what you're doing, but you still have to do it. Mm-hmm. And recognizing it's going to hurt, all, it's going to hurt people in the, in the long run. But being willing to sacrifice that for the greater good of winning a million dollars, of winning a million dollars, <laughs> absolutely. <laughs> hey, it's a game, man. People that's say true. that a lot on Survivor. <laughs> but yeah, um, yeah, it's again, and and it's and that's the thing is how Philip Seymour Hoffman is able to convey. That because he's conveying something to the character and to us at exactly the same time, yeah. And, and he's conveying two things it, that are at odds with each other, yeah. And he's conveying it to us, knowing as an actor, knowing like, well, the audience has seen me in other scenes where they see who I really am, so I'll rely on that knowledge, and then I can just be this to this kid and let them do some of the work without overly telegraphing, like without making the character, it's obviously sleazy and manip- manipulative. Mm-hmm. Um, it's, it is a very nice, subtle performance. Um, and, you know, and that, and I will say that, I mean, this takes place in Hamburg, Germany. And so all these characters, almost all these characters are German, but they do speak English, uh, you know, probably for our benefit.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Um, and so uh, I do have a, for some reason I have a knee jerk problem with that where part of me just yeah, feels like, too. It's like it takes place in Germany. And while I do recognize that English is often a common language, and so maybe the characters would engage in that, I just, I have this instinctive issue where it's like, you're taking me out of it because yeah. they're also speaking with German accents. Yeah. And I can't quite put my finger on why it bothers me. <laughs> I don't know. It's hard to explain. But once I accepted that, it was fine. He his German accent is very. It's it's what it needs to be. It's very. It's consistent. It, it it's not merely an accent. It's also a cadence. Yeah. And I think his cadence is is spot on. Mm-hmm. Um, moving on, Rachel McAdams. Uh, you know, I think people would say she's not that strong of an actress. I I disagree. I think she's very good at the part she plays. And in this role, and in this role, she's this. You know, like I said, a young, this young lawyer who means well and is trying to do the right thing. So there's an idealism to her. She, we're supposed to really, we're really supposed to understand she is young. And so she plays that. She plays young and idealistic and easily and someone who tries to stick by her principles but can also be persuaded pretty relatively easily. Yeah, because
1: part of her being young is that she doesn't she wants to be involved in this whole this war, I guess. Yeah. but she doesn't really know what it all means and what yeah. it all entails. And so uh, some of this movie is her realizing the the dirty reality behind a lot of her blind behind
0: Uh, a lot of the ideals that she holds and i think there's this idea of well okay if i get involved in this thing then maybe i can rather than be on the outside trying to make a difference i can make a difference within this structure and an argument could be made that she kind of does but in the end she's being manipulated and being used just as much as anybody else yeah but it's a good performance because that's the other thing is we need to see a certain naivete without without seeing stupidity right i feel like in film you often get i feel like the two go hand in hand. She could be Britta. She could be exactly. <laughs> yes. Uh, one of my favorite, uh, Josh is referencing uh, the uh, character from community and uh, there's a wonderful exchange where um, uh, a character has, uh, has, I believe died and she's trying to help uh, other people uh, deal with their feelings. And she's apparently a psychology major. So she says there are five steps to grieving. The last one is acceptance. And then Jeff Winger says, name any of the other four. And she goes, what are you, my final, <laughs> <laughs> just, she's immediately defensive because she knows she can't do anything else. Um, but anyway, so, uh, so, okay. Um, moving on. I, I think I feel like we might've already talked about, uh, Robin Wright a little bit. I do want to mention Willem Dafoe. Now, if you're like me, you think of Willem Dafoe as weird, <laughs> weird, weirdo Dafoe. That's what I call him. Uh, I think he's a wonderful actor. Yeah. Uh, I think he was amazing in the Last Temptation of Christ. I particularly like him in uh, Shadow of the Vampire, which the more mm-hmm. I think about it, the more I think I would like to talk about uh, during <laughs> Halloween times. Because hey. I, I personally think that there's a great deal of spiritual symbolism to the idea of vampires. But anyway, hmm. um, he's also in grand budapest hotel he is yes oh playing a very terrifying character yeah um and that's the thing he 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 often plays kind of grotesque strange characters it was only a matter of time before he like well they they didn't make nosferatu but they did the next best thing and of course he would play that character (laughs) he does kind of play extremes a lot yeah um even when he, as soon as
1: he was doing a German accent a little bit in this movie, I I thought of his character from The Life Aquatic because of course. he's also German in that Klaus, yeah. Which yeah. <laughs> it's played up much more in that film, Indeed. obviously. But I couldn't I couldn't help thinking of some of his lines Indeed. from that movie that I enjoy.
0: Yes, uh, and of course it is uh, the inclusion of his character in Life Aquatic that, uh, and what they do with him. That it's one of the things that frustrates me about that <laughs> film. Um, that's a conversation for another time. Um, that's the thing. By okay, so his character is just a bank manager who me who actually is a normal person. He's not involved in anything shady. His father was his father was like the was the manager of this bank and maybe helped the Nazis a little bit. And I mean, it was it was pretty rough. But he's not that. And as another character observes, he's doing everything he can to get away from that, get away from his father. You get a lot of that in this film, by the way, people trying to make up for things that their fathers have done. Mm -hmm. Um, But uh, so he's actually kind of a a pretty straight, uh, pretty straight guy. And but he gets brought in because, like I said, uh, and like we said in the summary, the 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 Chechen uh, immigrant, the, the Muslim kid. Um, he brings with him a great deal of money, and they're going to try and use that money to flush out this this philanthropist. Um, and so they need uh, they're going to need a bank to do that. And so they bring him in and and let him know what's happening. And you feel like because it's Willem Dafoe, uh, and just the casting of him makes you feel like, what's this guy up to? Is this guy <laughs> the guy? Is he in charge of everything bad? But he's not. He's just a regular guy who wants to do well but is in over his head he knows it and the character could be viewed as a little bit weak not sorry when i say a weak character i don't mean he's ill-defined he's a very well-defined character but the character himself character is a weak person yeah but why is he weak simply because he's in a movie with incredibly strong people yeah and but in in actuality i feel like if there is a surrog- if there's an audience surrogate in the film, it's Willem Dafoe's character. Yeah. I think he's the one that we that any of us would most likely be in this film.
1: He never really has any power either, yeah. which is which goes along with what you're saying, I think. Yeah.
0: And he and that's the thing, he manages to shed all the things that we think of when we think of Willem Dafoe. And he's able to just be a regular guy. And that's the thing Willem Dafoe as a performer has tremendous strength. Yeah. I mean he I mean even when he's playing a character who's out of control he seems like he is in control of the screen but he has to be regularly dominated by more confident characters in this film and he's able to do that without shrinking completely away mm-hmm. it is that is also a very controlled performance and he, and some, and it requires understanding of who his character is and the role he has to play in this film i love that performance and you wouldn't I wouldn't think that I would love a, perf- a, a performance of a weak character in the midst of a movie like this, where I naturally respond to strength.
1: Hmm.
0: Um, but I really liked his character, and I liked his performance a lot. So, okay, we should move into theme, which is, very, which is linked very much with, with character. Um, but before we do, is there anything else, any other uh, thoughts that you have about the filmmaking and, that, people, that you feel like people might want to know? Um I don't
1: know it's a i think the setting is interesting Hamburg mm-hmm. um and it's it's shot to look very dark. i think a lot of it the movie takes seems to take place in the dark, yeah, um, which maybe is a metaphorical choice yeah but uh but yeah, I think it has a it has a sleek look to it, if not uh, very uh if not very lively, maybe.
0: Yeah. It's, it's interesting aside from a couple scenes here and there. I mean, it mostly take pl- takes place in office buildings and in restaurants and in luxury cars. Like when you think of a spy movie, you think of, you know, underground layers. And there is, there is a, like, there's a bit of that. There's a bit of that, but that's actually our heroes. <laughs> um, and I, and I like the idea, like you said, it's, it's fairly mundane locations, Shot in a way that implies that in the world where we live, there's some, there's always something going on that we are not seeing and it's very shadowy Mm -hmm. and you're not going to, and you're not going to see it and maybe you don't want to see it. You can just continue living your normal life like Willem Dafoe is doing, uh, just living your normal life and turning a blind eye to all the stuff that might be happening underneath. Um, that's kind of how
1: I felt. Yeah. Yeah. Do you know by any chance I... I don't know how long John the wrote books. So yeah. it, do you know if this
0: is a more recent one because it takes place in, you wrote in 2006. Okay. I believe. And that's another thing. I mean, he wrote a lot about the cold war. So for him to tackle the war on terror, I feel like he must have seen a parallel. Yeah. And I could see that. Yeah. To a certain extent. Um, because either way, neither of them are a traditional war. Right. Um, both of them are everything. There's like covert actions going on. You have to anticipate what the other side is doing. Um, yeah. You know, intelligence is a big part of it and spying is a big part of it.
1: Well, and cause the, because the enemy in the war on terror is by, by its very nature, secretive yeah. and hidden. Yeah. Um, it's not like, it's a country with borders with declared
0: leaders or anything like that. And I think an argument could be made that while obviously there were nuclear implications in the Cold War, um, you know, in the war on terror, the stakes are as high as they can be because the, the targets are going to be civilians. Yeah. And so – You know, I think that's, I mean, when these characters, I think that's what weighs on them. That's why they are willing to maybe make some some moral compromises with themselves. Because it's like, yes, I might be lying to this person, but a bus full of people could, uh, of normal civilians, innocent people, these are not military targets. They could die if I don't do my job well. Mm -hmm. Um, And I feel like that's, you know, I, I think he's able to understand that there is a a similarity with the cold war and the fact that the war on terror could go on indefinitely mm-hmm. and i think an argument could be made that it will mm-hmm. um i'm not sure if uh, this is a larger discussion uh, that maybe we don't have time for in fact i know we don't um i find myself wondering like is there ever going to be a traditional war ever again i feel like now everything is like urban warfare with where intelligence plays just as big a role as anything else. Like I feel like world war two is over. Like I don't think there's ever going to be anything quite like that again. The closest will come. I feel like is Vietnam.
1: It depends on the, the type of aggressors and the scale. Really? I think, I think it could happen again, but yeah, it's, I, I think it would be unlikely to see nuclear war because everybody knows the fallout, no pun intended. Yeah. Um, of that would, would be, it would be too great on both sides. Yeah. Um, but I think traditional smaller war could happen on a larger scale, smaller war on a larger scale. Yeah. Um, so it'd be,
0: it'd be very interesting. Like, I mean, I didn't, I say interesting as though it's purely academic, but like, you know, you and I did not live through any major, you know, in a world war, nor even Vietnam. I mean, I, there's the, there's, there's a desert the storm. War, yeah. yeah. And then, the new Iraq war, which even had a different quality than the Gulf war. And so it was just very, it's very strange. And so, and it's, and it's interesting the toll that it can take on, on people and on characters. I mean, we see movies like the hurt locker and zero dark 30 and now uh, a most wanted man. Uh, I don't know. It's, it's an interesting subgenre, and it seems only appropriate that Jean le Carre would weigh in on that. Yeah. Um, so, okay. Yes. And th- so, yeah, thanks for, uh, for mentioning that. Um, Okay, so I'm not sure if we'll bring up the companion film first. I think we will because I, yeah. I have a lot of uh, I have a lot of uh, quotes from that. So the companion film is a movie that we talked about a few uh, weeks ago when we talked about uh, when we did our best of pictures Minnesota about Gladiator. Uh, we were talking about Steven Soderbergh's Traffic. So I don't have a whole lot to say because we've already talked about we've already talked about it. But it's a film about the drug war. It's an ensemble film in which you see the drug war from Basically every angle possible, you see it from the point of view of uh, the U.S. government, uh, DEA, um, Mexican law enforcement, Mexican law enforcement dealers, and then and addicts. Yeah, I mean, there's probably just from from every standpoint, and then you see, you know, you have people in very in those capacities. You have people. Uh, that are, believe in it wholeheartedly. You have people that are deeply cynical and just do what they want to do. You have people that are corrupt. Mm, People that are using it to their advantage. Yeah. And so there's a, there's a lot going on. And I, and I really respond to, uh, the way it's put together. Uh, and especially when you see, um, you know the people that who you know the people that are on the ground, mm-hmm. um, especially. Uh, there's a character played by Benicio del Toro. He won best supporting actor for this, by the way. Uh, who is he's just a Mexican cop, and he's doing his best, but he also knows that there's a lot of corruption in the police department in Mexico, and he has to work within that, but he also has to, you know he also sort of believes in the drug war primarily because of the effect that it has on children. Yeah. And so that's a fantastic character. I, his, when I think
1: of that movie, that's always one of the first things that I think of. Yeah. And that performance that uh, is never totally, totally cynical or totally, um, uh, zealous, I guess he falls in this weird
0: in between maybe pragmatic, place and there are times when you think he might be a little corrupt too right um yeah it, it's interesting that's a very Lacar type character yeah it is um and and incidentally uh benicio del toro won best supporting actor overwhelmed a foe for shadow of the vampire hmm. and uh it's that's rough because <laughs> there's call. there's such different types of performances yeah. but but yeah it's uh, i i really like benicio del toro as an actor uh, yeah, this has a too. great cast in general but he really the character and the performance there if there is a a heart and just a general core to the film it is that character mm-hmm. because you sort of get all the different viewpoints wrapped up in that guy yeah um and i th- and he seems to know it he he really has the weight of the world on his shoulders um so yeah it's it, the film in general, there are certain things that I think have been done since then. One is using different color filters, uh, depending on where you are, Mm -hmm. uh, yellow in Mexico, blue in, I think, Ohio and, uh, I think DC, right? And DC. Yeah. 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 Um, and then I think there's kind of a, not so much a white filter, but like in San Diego, you get, uh, not much of a filter at all, Mm. but things are very bright and clear looking and that sort of thing. And so, um, so I like that again, it, it won the Oscar for best editing. And I think rightfully so there's a lot of stuff to juggle, uh, knowing what to cut out. And I, I have the criterion, uh, collection version of traffic and there's basically an entire other movie of deleted scenes, wow. um, which I have not seen, but I'm curious. I think I have that same DVD, but I don't think that I've
1: seen any of those yeah. extra
0: ones. If and as I was go back. Yeah, as I was preparing for this episode, I was like, I haven't seen Traffic in a long time. I need to watch it again. Because um, I think there are probably some things that I may, now that I'm a little bit older, I think there are some things that are a little bit clunky that I might not respond to. But I think there are other things that I will appreciate, maybe even more, like the the storyline of Benicio del Toro's character. Mm-hmm. So so as I said, there's a, there's a lot going on here. Uh, and I think there is an argument to be made that the that the drug war is in some ways similar to the war on terror in the sense that you feel like it can never really be won. Mm -hmm. uh, that people are always going to fight it. You're going to have your victories, but through, you know, any through corruption and short sightedness, it's just never, ever going to work. Um, and so, you know, if you have characters that genuinely want to make a difference you're going to have characters that are deeply frustrated with their entire, with their lives and mm-hmm. with their choices. And so, um, so I equate, uh, Benicio del Toro's character, but also Don Cheadle, again, the, the guys, you know, on the ground that are the sort of the face of it. So, cause like Luis Guzman and, and Don Cheadle, they are, uh, DEA enforcement. Uh, they're not calling the shots. They're just, you know, they're just, following orders and and carrying things out and all that. Mm -hmm. Um, I feel like they're the, the core of the film and they're the ones that I feel like I relate to the most. And the ones that remind me the most of like Gunter from uh, a most wanted man. So, uh, so yeah, it's a film about trying to make a difference where you can, um, and not letting, yourself be overwhelmed by the difficulties, which would be very easy to do or not letting the difficulties change you to the extent that you are then part of the problem as, as happens to a lot of characters in traffic. Yeah. Um, so, and I, and that's the thing. I feel like we've, we talked about traffic when we talked about gladiator. So if you want to hear us talk about it in a a bit more detail, you can go and listen to that mini. sode. uh, between this and that you have a pretty good sense of what we were talking about. If you have not, I, I think we both agreed that it's a film that deserved to win best picture that year. Mm -hmm. It won, it was nominated for five Oscars. It won four of them. The one it didn't win was best picture, which is very strange. Um, and so, so I'm going to read through a number of quotes that we're, we're going to get into the, the thematic uh, element here. There, there's a number of quotes that really struck me in traffic that can easily be applied to a most wanted man and to the idea of difficulties in general. Um, there is a character that I love in traffic uh, played by Miguel Ferrer, an actor that I've that I enjoy. And he is uh, he's a the American side of a drug cartel. He is a distributor and he gets arrested. And so he speaks very plainly and openly about the drug war. And he, he often acts as a mouthpiece, uh, for the writer and for the philosophy of the film. But of course, to put the words in the mouth of a character we don't like, um, I think that's, I think that's always a a good idea because you find yourself agreeing. It's, it's not on like making, having the Joker make sense in the dark. Right. Like you, you don't want to agree with him, but then he says something that you're like, ah, he's right about that. (laughs) And so, but then there's also a, a Mexican general who seems to be like very, you know, he's a, he's a stubborn guy and he, and he has a kind of rules with an iron fist when it comes to drug enforcement. I mean, he really, he's pretty rough. Um, And so between the two of these guys, uh, you get an idea of the drug war in the film. And you have characters that want to make a difference, but then they come up against somebody like this general, General Salazar. And uh, Michael Douglas plays the new drug czar in the U.S. And so he meets in an official capacity. He meets with this general and he asks him about uh, the drug war on the Mexican side. And he says, so what is your, you know, what is your policy on treatment of addiction? And the general says this very harrowing thing, and he says treatment. He says treatment of addiction. And he says addicts treat themselves. They overdose, and then there's one less to worry about. And you hear that, and you just see Michael Douglas's response of like, "Okay, <laughs> I mean, I guess that is one way of approaching it." But yeah. the reason that the drug war is being fought is because we don't want people to be addicted to drugs. We want to have, you know. By the way, listeners, whatever you might think of the drug war, and I'm not even really sure what I think of it these days. Um, but you know, it's it's fought for like the the souls of like kids and teenagers, and it seems mm-hmm. somehow appropriate that we're talking about a film starring Philip Seymour Hoffman, who died of a drug overdose. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, there there are horrible evils that happen as a result of this, mm-hmm. and so, but there still needs to be, I think, at its core, uh, a heart uh, towards people who deal with this, um, and so for the general to say, oh they they overdose and there's one less to worry about. Like he literally is viewing the the drug war as all one thing, sort of equating the dealers and the addicts as essentially equally culpable. Um, and it's, it's really rough in that moment. And so you look at somebody who is not, who is theoretically on your side, but is going completely in many, in my opinion, the wrong way in his uh, philosophy and, and execution. Uh, but then, so here's, here's a few, a couple quotes by the character Eduardo Ruiz, who's that Miguel Ferrer character I told you about. He says, In Mexico, law enforcement is an entrepreneurial activity. We hire drivers with nothing and throw a lot of product at the problem. Some get stopped, enough gets through. It's not difficult. Look, boys, this has worked for years and it's going to continue to work for years. Uh, and then he. When talking to the DEA agents, he says, you guys remind me of Japanese soldiers on deserted islands who still think World War II is going on. The fact is that your government surrendered this war a long time ago. Those are very deeply cynical uh, statements. Mm -hmm. Um, And later on in the film, you have – I didn't write this down, but you have the drug czar, uh, Michael Douglas, talking to guys in the DEA, talking about like, okay, well, what can we do? uh with these Mexican cartels, uh he says, you know, as far as the money that they're spending, he says, are you saying that, that, uh that they spend as much as we do? And then the guy says, oh no, they're way beyond us. <laughs> they can always, they'll always beat us because this is all they do. We're never, unless we're willing to put, you know, billions of dollars into the drug war, like we're never going to get there. And so it's just, uh, so the whole film is just this wake-up call, and you just – so you look at that, just these characters who, the more they dig into it, they the more futile it seems. You look at that, and then you look at the character of, of Gunter who, again, by the end, he's got this surefire plan, and it's a good plan, and it could work. It is long-sighted, and it could actually make a difference. But then you get people, again, on his own side. This is where the spoiler comes in. I'm not going to – I'm not going to – be specific, but uh, it's it's enough that you'll know what I mean. You get people on his own side who kind of sell him out and do their own thing, so that they can say, we have a victory, even though, like, they'd rather take a small victory now than a huge victory later.
1: Or even something that they can just label as a victory, whether or not yeah. it's an actual victory.
0: Oh, exactly. Absolutely. And so, uh, so you get these characters who are trying to do things, who are trying to think outside the box a little bit so that they can have a larger victory and... Being undercut not merely by the enemy, but by their own people. And just feeling like there's, you know, uh, by the end, you know, Philip Seymour Hoffman, he, he explodes in kind of this impotent rage. And there's this, uh, there's a scene that I'm reminded of in traffic where Benicio del Toro, he has a partner who doesn't quite understand. The ramifications of of his actions, because he's trying to work within the department as well and get what he can. And you see Benicio del Toro, who knows that things are, are consequences are coming and they're going to land on him. And you see him sitting in his car, and he just starts hitting something. You don't; it's off screen. He might be hitting his leg, he might be hitting the seat, but you just see this intensity and just this frustration of like how can someone do this to me? I'm trying to do something good and it's just not happening. And mm-hmm. it's just this frustration. And again, the characters, they remind me of the, of each other quite a bit. Mm-hmm. So, okay. So how does this relate to Christianity? A number of ways. Well, okay. And so I'll talk first about what it is to like be a Christian in the world and try and trying to make a difference in the world, trying to, fulfill the great commission as they say, and like reach out to people, evangelize, you know, spread the gospel and all that. And how difficult that can be because not only will some people not listen, some people will openly mock you. Some people will try to undercut you. And, you know, I mean, I'm 32. I've, I've, I've been very open about my faith to the extent that some people really don't like it. As you know, when I'm when I mention I'm a Christian over at Battleship Retention, there's one guy, you can read the iTunes review, who's really put off by that. Mm. Um and so So I I try to do that, but at the same time like I I get emails from you guys and it's very nice and very encouraging, but I sometimes wonder if I'm making any positive difference at all because in the end part of me feels like, well, I'm just talking. I'm not like in Africa feeding children and stuff. (laughs) And I feel like everybody has a a part to play and I feel like I'm, I'm trying to play mine as best I can. Uh, But I also feel like I'm not making a huge, a huge difference, you know? And okay. I will trust that you guys know what I mean when I say this. All right. I don't have any, I don't have any conversions like I've never spread. I've never shared the gospel with anybody. And that person says, that sounds good. I think I want to do that. I've never had that in my life. It's not stopped me from doing it, but after a while you start, but then of course, you know, we have a friend who, and he's been on the show talking about this. So I can say who it is. His name's Bobo. He, uh, he was on, episode like 28, 29 talking about happy go lucky. And just, he, he just has the, the gift of evangelism because I believe the joke that I say is he falls down the stairs, lands at the bottom. And then that person says, wow, that guy just fell down the stairs. Not unlike we fell from grace. You know what? I want to be a Christian. Like it's just, <laughs> he just, fall, it just happens. And, it, and I look at that and I just feel like, what am I doing wrong? I'm not, you know, I'm not hiding it under a bushel. no, I'm going to let it shine and nothing is happening. So that's one side of it. But then at the same time, I often feel like, you know, somebody will question me and maybe I don't have the right answer. So there are times when I feel like I'm doing damage to, uh, to my faith. Yeah. Not merely my faith, but the, the faith. Yeah. Yeah. I'm representing it poorly. Um, and so I'll talk about that before I move on to the, the, the third problem I have. So, uh, much to my surprise, I am going to quote from lamentations. You don't hear much from that book these days, <laughs> but there's some really good stuff in there. Um, okay, this is Lamentations 3:14 and 3:18. I became the laughing stock of all my people. They mock me in song all day long. So I say my splendor is gone and all that I had hoped for uh, and all that I had hoped from the Lord. That's a pretty good lamentation. And just this feeling that that you're trying and nobody cares, nobody's paying attention. You're not making any difference, which which leads me to this exchange uh, when the when Michael Douglas, as the new Drug Czar in Traffic, he's talking to the the guy he's replacing, played by James Brolin, who's very good in that scene, uh, and he says, "Well, you've done a fine job, General. The Office of National Drug Control Policy is in better shape than when you found it." And the general responds, I'm not sure I made the slightest difference. I tried. I really did. And there's such a, there's such a sadness in that moment of a guy who had all the authority to make a difference and really tried to make a difference, but feels like he's done nothing. Mm-hmm. It just feels like he's just spinning his wheels.
1: Yeah.
0: Um, so, and I'll bring up the, I'll bring up the third one. Then I'll throw, I'll throw it to you and see your, your opinion on these. So, okay, this is, I need to step carefully here because I don't want to just put blame on other Christians. But there, it is not unheard of to be trying to live out your faith in a sincere way, trying to act as Jesus would, being loving to people, listening to them, trying to convince them that they are loved um, and that they are valued by God. And then somebody comes along, another Christian, and says some of the most hateful, horrible things that would never, ever uh, convey God's love or God's grace. I mean, we talked a little bit last week about the yellow signs at Comic-Con. Now, Mm -hmm. they're not necessarily hateful. They're not – again, it's not the Westboro Baptist people who – But those people uh, exist too. Those people – exactly. You can't – now, thankfully, they're so ridiculous that I think every I think everybody has said sure, those guys are uh, even like even the most staunch atheist in the world could look at those guys and say, "All right, well, they're clearly not uh, they're the fringe; mm-hmm. they're not mainstream Christianity at all." Um, and so, but but to go to the yellow signs, uh, I think I probably agree with what they say in a, lot of, in a lot of ways, but they show that they are so tone deaf in how they want to relate to people that they don't relate to people. And so I feel like I have to try and do, for lack of a better term, damage control. Uh, and I feel like that's a mean thing to say. I feel like that implies that I get it right all the time. I don't. There are things that I say that people take very much either the wrong way or they just or I just said the, the right thing at the wrong time. And it alienated people. But yeah, so I don't mean to say that only other Christians do this. But there are times when like Christians for whatever reason, maybe they've been in the church for a long time. Maybe they haven't known any non-Christians in a long time. But the way that they present the gospel just runs so counter to the way Jesus presented the gospel mm-hmm. that you feel like, Ugh, I, I've been working so hard to do this right. And now you, this person comes along and with two sentences or with one yellow sign, they come along and maybe undo this. And rather than think, oh, well, those people are the the odd man out, they think, oh, those people are the norm and maybe, and maybe Tyler's more like them than I thought and maybe this is just what Christianity is and I'm right for rejecting it. And so it's it's very frustrating. And so, again, it's not merely that you get resistance on the part of non-believers but you also get you also get christians who maybe focus on the wrong things i know that i do from i do from time to time but they focus on the wrong things they communicate the wrong things and you just feel like i i'm never going to do any like this is never going to work out it works out for some people but for some reason it's not working for me so why am i even doing this that is a response that I – I don't think it a lot. you know. If I did, I probably would have stopped this podcast. Um, but I do think it from time to time. Have you encountered any of this? I've talked about a lot of aspects here. Have mm-hmm. you encountered any of this in your own life?
1: I think I've encountered the the – probably most of all the feeling that there is an overall – objective or I guess you could call it a battle if you would, but that it doesn't feel like you, you can make any difference in, right. Um, whether that be, uh, specific things that God wants, asks us to help people with, like in mm-hmm. a, in a very practical way, like, uh, the, you know, helping those less fortunate than ourselves or something like that. Yeah. Um, or whether it be, uh, bringing people to to hear the message that that god would want them to hear to hear the message of the gospel and to to you know get anything out of that to believe in that um so i I, i've i can i have felt the frustration of of seeing those huge goals and feeling like nothing that i can do is actually going to change yeah those goals Um, even in, in small scale things. I mean, we've both had friends that we've spoken to about, about uh, God or Christianity or anything like that, who are not interested. And when you think like, here's one person who I love and identify with and all this, but this is not interested in this ever being a part of their lives and doesn't even really want to hear it. Yeah. Then you think like, what is the hope for the larger battle? Yeah. If even in this small instance, which I should have some kind of control over or at least should uh, – or, or at least have agency in, um, if, if I can't do anything here, then what's the hope for anybody as a whole?
0: Yeah, and I feel like this is something that – you know, uh, you and I are talking about it in, in Christian terms, but I think it's something that everybody can relate to is this desire to make a difference in this world and not not just for the sake of like their own legacy but wanting to you know uh, looking at this quote from from traffic, you know, the Office of National Drug Control Policy is in better shape than when you found it. We all want to hear the world is in better shape than when we found it. Mm-hmm. Um, I know that I said this in the mini that I recorded a couple years ago about my dad, that, that that wanting to make a difference was a big motivator in his life, and maybe too much of a motivator in his life. And uh and there are times when he felt like he hadn't made any difference really. Um and I think that kind of got passed on to me, like wanting to Wanting to matter, but not just for the sake of significance, but wanting to matter because when you matter, people listen and maybe you can make a difference in their lives. Um, And so, you know, it's something that everybody, I think, can relate to. And that moment when you realize, I'm not going to make that much of a difference. There's probably only, I don't know, I'm going to say 200 people in the history of the world that have made the kind of positive difference uh, through their actions, um, that we all wish we could make. I mean, there are people that maybe affect a whole town. I mean, we want to change the world. <laughs> and I think there's pro- probably only a handful of people that have done that. Mm. Uh, in the sorry, it's really easy to change the world for the worse. Oh, yeah. Don't get me wrong. But to change it for the better, uh, is another issue. And so, um, but what I want to talk about is, um, Is this idea of uh, of focusing on on like if you only ever want to make a huge difference, then you're never gonna and you refuse to do anything except that, then you're never gonna do anything. Obviously, Um, and the the hopelessness and the futility will overtake you, and you're never gonna do anything for anybody but yourself. Um, And so there's the story here uh, called the starfish story that uh, that I've known for a long time. Um, I did not know that it had an official author, but apparently it is written by a a guy named Lauren Isley, who is an author, uh, who's written a number of books. And uh, Josh, I'll throw it to you. You will now read The Starfish Story. Oh, good. All right, here we go. Um, One day a man
1: was walking along the beach when he noticed a boy picking something up and gently throwing it into the ocean. Approaching the boy, he asked, what are you doing? The youth replied, throwing starfish back into the ocean. The surf is up and the tide is going out. If I don't throw them back, they'll die. Son, the man said, don't you realize there are miles and miles of beach and hundreds of starfish? Fish? You can't make a difference. After listening politely, the boy bent down, picked up another starfish, and threw it back into the surf. Then, smiling at the man, he said, I made a difference for that one.
0: Uh, I love that Ooh, story. That's yeah. What says afterwards. Yeah, and then he threw the starfish down on the beach and said, I'm out. Yeah. Um... Like a microphone is what I'm saying, and, that, and the man walked into the sea and never came yes. back. Yes, and he anywhere. said, "I have been bested by a boy. I will now walk to Europe." Um, so, yeah, it's it, you know, it does have that quality to it, but it is it's a story that I try to remember because I do like the way that it is. I love the structure of it, which is literally like the the kid probably will not save every starfish on the beach, but if he saves two, if he, then that's two that weren't going to be otherwise. And if we look at life like that, I think, um, I think we can be encouraged, you know, just looking at the people in our own lives. I mean, you know, as it turns out this, I didn't mean for it to be, but this is actually a good companion episode to last week. Uh, talking about the big kahuna Mm -hmm. Um, and just looking to make a difference. Maybe we'll make a global difference. Great. You know, and if so, wonderful, but we can certainly make a difference in the lives of our best friends or our loved ones. And sometimes that means sharing the gospel. Sometimes that means being the type of person that if they know you're a Christian, they think, wow, that they probably did that because they're a Christian, you know, who knows? Um, just being a blessing in people's lives and being there when nobody else would or maybe even when you yourself don't necessarily want to, but recognize that you're supposed to because it will make a difference in their maybe not even in their life. It will make a difference in their day. Mm. you know and just you know there is there is a, an argument to m- be made for baby steps. You can only there's a quote that I didn't write down by C.s Lewis, which is something like you know change comes when you take a step and then another. You know, that's, that's really all you can do. And so, um, I have a, a few other, uh, a few other quotes here, some from the Bible about, uh, perseverance and that sort of thing. So Galatians six, nine says, let us not become weary in doing good for at the proper time. We will reap a harvest if we do not give up. Uh, it's very easy to become weary of doing good. Uh, you watch these movies. They're about people that are weary of <laughs> doing good. Um, Charles Spurgeon has a, a, a fun quote here by perseverance. The snail reached the ark." Uh, I like the idea of that because uh, it reminds me of a, of a joke where um, a guy is, st- is sitting in his house and he hears a knock at the door and he opens it up and it's a snail saying, Hey, how's it going? And the guy's like, Hey, by the way, this, the joke ha- tends to have a lot of swear words in it. So I got to try and not say them. So the guy picks up the snail and he says, get out of here. And he throws the snail. And, uh, three years later, the guy's sitting at his door again, he hears a knock, he opens up, it's a snail and the snail's like, what's your problem, man? So that's the (laughs) joke. Uh, and I enjoyed a lot. So, um, so yeah, it just, you just gotta keep, you you know, you just have to, to keep it going as they would say in Nashville. Um, that's the name of a song in the movie, Nashville. Uh, okay. Proverbs twenty four sixteen. for though the righteous fall seven times, they rise again, but the wicked stumble when calamity strikes. Now I've looked at different, uh, translations of that verse. And one of them says that when the wicked stumble, they stay down. Hmm. Um, and you know, we're going to, we're always going to make mistakes. Sometimes other Christians will make mistakes, but if we just act like, Oh, well, we had a good run. That's the end of it. Mm-hmm. Uh, then that is the that's the best way to guarantee you won't make any difference yeah. is to not try. Um, and so I will.
1: Isn't that? I guess this kind of applies to the general theme, but certainly applies to the specifics. In like a most in a most wanted man, for instance, there's a quote, and I don't remember remember who said this, but. Um, and I'm not going to remember the exact quote either, but some, something to the effect of the the best way for evil to, um, spread, to, con- to spread is yeah. for good men to do nothing.
0: Exactly. Yeah. And then, um, I mean, and then there's another thing, I think, from World War II where it talks about how you know when they came for this group i didn't say anything cuz i wasn't a part of that group when mm-hmm. they came for this group i said nothing cuz i wasn't part of that group and it keeps going until ultimately you know when they came for me there was no one left to speak up so uh but that speaks to that speaks to a number of things one is like well i'm not i don't have a dog in this fight so it's fine but you know imagine the difference that could be made in larger calamities if people stood up at the beginning of things you know, and so uh, when when you feel you know when it seems like oh the stakes are very low, so I won't act because it won't make a big difference. But of course, eventually small things grow into big things, and then it's too late to make a difference. One could make the argument, and so um, so yeah, and so I want to uh, I want to bring us back around to lamentations because again, I mean. I became the laughingstock. They mock me in song all day long. So I say my splendor is gone and all that I had hoped from the Lord. So that's pretty rough stuff. But in the same chapter of Lamentations, so I, I'm, I'm skipping around a little bit. So this is Lamentations 322, 25 and 31 through 32. Because of the Lord's great love, we are not consumed, for his compassions never fail. The Lord is good to those whose hope is in him, to the one who seeks him. For no one is cast off by the Lord forever. Though he brings grief, he will show compassion. So great is his unfailing love. So that's one of the things that I want to emphasize, is that we're going to fail. Other Christians are going to fail. There are times when it feels like it's completely futile and and we're not going to... uh, we're not going to do it. We're not going to make any difference at all. And that might even be true for us individually, but in the end, it's not actually about what we can do. It's about what God can do through us, can do for us. And he doesn't fail. Um, you know, as we see from uh, Joseph and the amazing Technicolor dream um, <laughs> you know, uh, music and lyrics by God, by God. Indeed. Yes. Mm. Um, Boy, it shows because that's a that's a toe tap and show, <laughs> um, you know, but Joseph says to his brothers, you meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. So there are times when we might even see something as a failure, but it can still be used for tremendous good because mm-hmm. God is ultimately in control. And so uh, but I do want to end with an image that I love. It is, I believe, the last image of traffic. And it's Benicio del Toro he is uh informing on uh this general that uh that we talked about who as it turns out is yes he is a, a hard-nosed guy when dealing with drugs but that tends to be he's hard-nosed when it comes to a certain cartel ah. cuz he's on the payroll of another cartel <laughs> and Benicio del Toro finds this out and he informs uh I think that he informs to the DEA. And even in the moment he said, he sort of feels like a traitor, which is an odd thing to feel because he knows he's doing a good thing. Mm -hmm. But, and, and first off, I love that line. I love the way he says it because it adds complexity that even when you're doing the right thing, you might feel like you're doing the wrong thing. But anyway, uh, and what he says, they said, well, what do you want for this information? And he says, uh, I want you to set up lights in the parks Uh, of this city so the kids can play baseball at night. And so they have something to do so that they don't just turn to drugs, turn to dealing and that sort of thing. And he says, all kids like baseball, you know, and it's just, it's just wonderful moment. And you see, um, so that happens, you know, with probably about 20 minutes left to go of the film and I don't. I feel like you don't really see Benicio del Toro again. Like that's the last thing you 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 see of him until the very end, when some people have. You know, there have been some failures, some successes, uh, but there is a sense of hope, primarily because the last image of the film is this beautiful Brian Eno song, uh, and you just see in Mexico. We know because the yellow filter it's nighttime and there's a baseball game happening with little kids. And you see Benicio del Toro in the stands, um, clapping and you just see this mo- and it, it, he doesn't an over a but it's just this moment of like, he did, he got this. Mm-hmm. I mean, yes, he might've, he might've struck a blow like in the drug war, but in the end, like, okay, so this general is going down and this cartel is going down. Somebody else is probably just going to come up. I mean, a, a character does describe it as a game of whack-a-mole, but, um, so he knows that, but it's like, well, I did take down some people. And in the meantime, these kids are safe. And some would say it's baseball. It's just, that's it. <laughs> it's not that big of a win, but it might be a win for some of these kids. You know, it makes the difference in the life of this one starfish. And it's yeah. a really wonderful, strong moment. Yeah. Uh, partially because like it emphasizes his character again. Yeah. And just the, the small victory that he has. And Mm -hmm. that is the note the film goes out on. And as we know, baseball is inherently funny as well. So uh, absolutely, yeah, it goes out on a zany note, you know, Um, like your hat, right? Yes, California Angels, Mm -hmm. let's get it. (laughs) Um, But yeah, and so I feel like uh, you know that's one of the reasons that I like um, traffic is because despite everything, despite everything we've seen, it does end on a note of of hope. Um, and that is the thing is that we do, no matter how many times we've failed, no matter how many times anybody else has failed, we still have hope because we still have God. And ultimately, that is where we find our hope. And that is what we're trying to communicate to people. So sometimes one could make the argument that even in not giving up, we are communicating God's love to people. Whereas if, you know, if we fail and then just fall off the face of the planet and say, okay, I had my chance and now it's done. People might say like, they might not say this, but, uh, they could look at that and say like, well, I thought your hope was in God. So why are you now hopeless? Um, and I say that as though I've never felt hopeless. I feel hopeless all the time. Um, (laughs) but yeah, so I wanted to put that out there, not just for, for you guys, but also for me and for Josh and, and that sort of thing, because eventually you will, I think you will feel like, what difference can I make? How can I overcome the stuff I, the the bad stuff I've done in the past. Uh, and you just have to keep going, try to make changes where you can. And there, there is no, there is no futility. So, uh, I think we will end there. Mm -hmm. Um, I want to remind everybody, uh, and I, again, sorry, I, I, don't like to put out calls for money on this show. But we do have a very specific, uh, you know, a very specific goal here uh, for Alpha Omega Con. It happens September twentieth. So if you happen to be in the in the uh, Southern California area and you want to come see me, Josh won't be there; he'll be out of town. But if you want to come see me, you can come to Alpha Alpha Omega Con and come to my booth. Please do. Absolutely, uh, I w- I like meeting listeners, and so, uh, but yeah, and there are costs involved. So if you want to donate to the show, uh, and maybe even if you don't. We would really appreciate it. Again, even five, ten dollars helps because the costs aren't a lot, but they are still out of pocket. So, uh, thank you very much, everybody. Uh, You can go to more than one lesson for all the uh, articles and and podcasts and stuff like that. Uh, Please like us on Facebook. You can follow me on Twitter at more lessons. You can follow Josh on Twitter at the Josh Long at the Josh Long. Uh, and I think that is about it. Thank you everybody for listening. Josh, thanks for being here. You're welcome. And we'll get you next time. Bye.